So open up to Hebrews 1. What I want to do is I want to navigate uh, a bit more on some research that I'm working on um, on uh, Cyril's exegetical practices. Cyril's exegetical practices. Right last week, last week we talked uh, a lot about sort of the motivations of early Christian exegesis. Right, it's it's in the culture of ancient uh, grammarian uh, reading culture. Uh, we're we're also looking at philosophy and way of life language. Right, the concept of literary theory and the the concept of virtue formation they they come together in early Christian exegesis. Uh, I was reading some uh, uh, some stuff today. Uh, some other scholarship today on he, on Cyril's exegetical paradigms. And, and one of the items that was brought out is the use of the spirit and divine illumination. Illumination not just extends to the, uh, the, the scriptural writers per se, but in Cyril's framework, it was assumed that the divine spirit in you would illuminate your own mind so that you have faith first, then you can understand the scriptures. So this notion of early Christian exegesis being rooted in the life of God is highly important. God the Father reveals the Son, giving the Spirit, redeems and saves humanity so that humanity has the Spirit within them, and then the Spirit in them exposes and reveals Christ in you, enabling you then to contemplate God. So scriptural exegesis then is in the big movements of God's own self-revelation. God begins by giving of the two persons, redeeming and saving humanity, the Spirit indwells you, exposing Christ to you, enlightening the eyes, giving divine illumination to your eyes, then enabling you to have contemplation of God. So then, scriptural exegesis is a means to an end, right? Scriptural exegesis is not just the end, but it's the tools to get you to the end of further contemplation of God. So in this paper right here, uh, I want to look at uh, a couple of items. I want to look at a couple of items. Um, I want to look at just big picture. I want to look at big picture where and what is Cyril's commentary on the he uh, on on Hebrews. Uh, what is he doing with uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, and more particularly, I want to again sort of narrow in and define a little bit clearer the concept of partitive exegesis, partitive exegesis. So thesis, right out of the gate, uh, this was a, uh, a presentation that I did uh, in Oxford uh, maybe a year and a half ago, and it'll be published within a Petters uh, proceedings. In this paper, I described Cyril of Alexandria's partitive reading strategy in his commentary on Hebrews. So as Cyril's Christological exegesis remains thoroughly tied to particular theological commitments, such as Trinitarian relations, inseparable activities, eternal generation of the Son, in Adamic typology that will come up, that will peek its head here and there, and, the, and his term, the economy of the flesh. That's a very Cyril-esque term. I want to specifically highlight how Cyril reads in his commentary on Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, and how he discusses the two properties of the single son. So remember where we're at in Christological debates. We're prior to the Nestorian controversy. Cyril's, uh, Cyril's involved in the Nestorian controversy. 
So this whole notion of two suns is going to peak its head. So what Cyril's trying to do is trying to, how do we talk about the two properties and uphold a single sun? So as Cyril's argument unfolds, a mutual relationship emerges whereby Cyril's theological paradigm and Cyril's exegetical grammar mutually serve the other. So in his commentary on Hebrews in particular, Cyril's Trinitarian pro-Nicene exegesis <clears throat> displays several Christological exegetical moves that include typological readings from types and shadows, prosopological intra-Trinitarian dialogue, I'll define that here in a minute, and partitive readings of scriptures. One thing with Cyril about his scriptural exegesis is that it is thoroughly uh, Christological in focus. It is thoroughly Christological in focus. Uh, he will at times talk about how we need to do literal readings and historical readings, but we don't stop there. It should serve and end with Christological reflections. Christological reflections. So even though, even though we, we want to talk about Cyril's Trinitarian hermeneutics or Cyril's Trinitarian exegesis, it is going to be thoroughly Christological in focus. It's going to be thoroughly Christological in focus. So as we continue, Cyril's partitive reading strategy assumes a few items. At the most basic level, partitive reading considers the two natures of the sun. That is the sun as divine and the sun as human. And the exegetical moves to draw out the theologia of the sun. More specific to my thesis, Cyril's partitive patterns in this section of his commentary assume the eternal, divine, immutable theologia of the sun, the temporal and mutable human theologia of the incarnate sun, and the economy of the flesh. So, for Cyril's theological paradigm, he assumes a number of pro-Nicene Trinitarian categories and a Christological structure assuming theologia and oikonomia with the flesh of a two-natured son. Questions or comments so far? Questions or comments so far? I realize this is going to feel a little bit headier because this is stemming out of my academic research, right? So hopefully what this is doing is that for those drawn towards uh, uh, maybe THM, PhD, hopefully this is at least showing you a kind of model to begin with. Yeah, go for it. Super. Yes. Mm-hmm. Example, Genesis 1, creation. How would you typically preach Genesis 1? Probably running to what is God doing back then, right? What is God doing back then? How would Jewish readers understanding it back then? What would Cyril do with it? No, 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 no. You don't stop there, right? How then does it uphold and point to Christ so that you, O Christian, can then contemplate God? This is reminiscent of other places as well. Yeah, not just peculiar to Hebrews. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. sort of with no apology, right? He'll even talk about how, uh, just read something in uh, the Glyphra. The Glyphra is going to be his spiritual readings of the Pentateuch. And then in his commentaries on the 12, uh, the 12 prophets, which, would, which we know as the minor prophets, right, um, the, the, the 12, he talks about how uh, historical readings lend itself to the mystery of Christ. So histor history and historical readings are never the end game, 
it's always a prop, right? It's a prop to uphold true crystal, right? Christological reflection or the aiming towards the person of Christ. So then you could do um, a contemplation on the divine life. This is a, a sort of a heady way to talk about this, but let me just go ahead and talk about this for a moment. Uh, it's hard to situate things historically, and I sort of want to just navigate this for you. Many of exegetical, uh, Cyril's exegetical's works on the New Testament are either lost or incomplete. For Cyril's commentary on Hebrews, we have P.E. Pusey's edition. This edition includes minimal Syriac and Latin fragments that include uh, commentary and homilies. Feels like it's a collection uh, uh, in Pusey's edition. So Pusey's Greek edition includes fragment, fragmentary commentary on Hebrews 1, 1 to 13, 16, often in katana form. Some commentary sections are longer as, in, as is the case for Hebrews 1, gratefully. While the Nestorian controversies may unfold as early as 428, some of Cyril's comments within commentary on Hebrews demonstrate awareness of a Nestorian controversy, thereby suggesting a date circa 428 to 432. So it's situating right at the beginning of the Nestorian controversy. This sort of reflection is coming out. So, so no wonder his exegesis is Christological, right? That's the sort of the polemical backdrop as, uh, uh, as well. Daniel Keating lists the available works of Cyril and places them in somewhat chronological order while he situates the commentary within a post-Nestorian era. He minimally comments about the dating of the Hebrews commentary. The homilies on Luke and the commentary on Hebrews show clear marks of the Nestorian controversy and should so be assigned to the post-Nestorian era. Paul Parvis, moreover, engages this very question, and my argument assumes the essential findings of Parvis' research. A statement in a letter by Alexander of Hierapolis, an historian bishop, serves as a terminus antiquum, who refers to Cyril's commentary twice, and even calls Cyril a heretic for upholding a two-nature Christology. Parvis suggests that an exact terminus postquim proves more challenging to establish. According to Henry Chadwick, Cyril's use of, quote, hypostatic union associates with the, him with the Nestorian controversy because this phrase occurs in none of Cyril's exegetical works with the exception of the commentary on, uh, commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews. So as Parvis regards, the commentary must have been written after the outbreak of the Nestorian controversy and must fall within a period of, say, five years with 428 and 432 as outside limits, right? That seems really tedious, right? Seems really tedious. I could have just said probably 430 is when it's written. I just want to sort of uh, unfold this broader argument. Uh, so then rolling through on his partitive exegesis. What I want to do here is sort of define partitive exegesis, and then we'll get into actual examples of his exegetical moves. So Cyril's Trinitarian and two-nature Christology intrinsically joins together his exegetical practices and theological reasoning. Both a priori theological commitments and exegetical practices mutually inform one another, Lewis Ayers, too, mentions these patterns in pro-Nicene theologians when he, when he writes the following. Some of the themes of this reprisal help us to see how early Christian exegetical practices shapes modes of theological rationality apparent in the period's controversy. So in other words, in other words this notion that all exegesis is neutral and lends itself to theology is not this paradigm. This paradigm would consist of a very circular dance, a very circular type of moves. You assume good theology 
and it informs your exegetical practices and your exegetical practices then move and inform your theology. So it's very insular, it's very insular. This is why matters of theological dispute could be one of multiple things. It could either be you have poor theological formation, it could be you have poor exegesis, or third, you're a non-virtuous person, right? And I know that that just feels like a big swing of the, the hand to the other way. Like that, that doesn't feel like it flows. But remember, virtue is the base. Contemplation of God is the goal. Exegesis is merely just small props, right? Exegesis is never the end goal. Early Christian scholars still have room right here to advance and discuss the framework and paradigms of partitive scriptural exegesis. The following questions come to the fore. So here are some questions that I still have about this method. How does this reading strategy fit within the whole of pro-Nicene Christological exegesis? How do partitive readings relate to the reading culture of the fourth and fifth century Christians? And especially for Cyril, how do, how do Cyril's Christology and partitive readings relate? Within more recent Cyriline scholarship, Lars Kaon, Daniel Keating, and Marie, uh, uh, Marie Odile Bournois, and Matthew Crawford briefly mention these reading habits in Cyril's literature. In The Saving Passion, Lars Kaon briefly explores Cyril's partitive readings in the Gospel of John. Maurice Wiles calls this reading practice two-nature exegesis, whereas Kaon chooses to name this same pattern partitive exegesis. According to Keating, Cyril presents a twofold uh, sense when reading scripture, literal and spiritual. The bi this binary distinction needs far more nuance than a mere literal and spiritual sense. Back in the 1950s, some of the major criticisms of patristic exegesis are they don't practice the historical critical paradigm. So modern scholars would criticize patristic, patristic exegesis on the basis of current methods. Uh, uh, Keating sort of reflects a little bit of this because he wants this twofold binary. Either they interpret literal or either they interpret spiritual. That binary just needs far more distinction. It's more complex than just as simple. Do they read literally? Do they read spiritually? Uh, as Keating nascently describes part of the exegesis, he distinguishes the spiritual readings that point to the divinity of Jesus. He, he notes this. The spiritual sense comprehends divine teaching and the mysteries of the faith, and especially those aspects of the Gospels that pertain to and reveal the divinity of Christ. John Bear, John Bear, is this, is this name familiar to anyone this deep into the class? John Bear. Okay, good. John Bear just got picked up uh, by, yeah, Edinburgh. Edinburgh or St. Andrews. He just got picked up. Uh, he's an uh, Eastern Orthodox confession, but he is a world-renowned premier patristic scholar. He has an excellent book, excellent book. It would be a companion piece to Lewis Ayer's book on Nicaea. If you want to look this up, John Bear on the Nicene Faith. It's a two-volume, uh, two-part book. He notes this. Uh, uh, defining part of exegesis, and he's trying to situate it between two types of categories, Nicene thinkers and non-Nicene thinkers. So in Bear's framework, to be a Nicene thinker, you have to then affirm part of exegesis. It's a necessary exegetical move to be pro-Nicene. So here we are. He'll say this. The issue between the Nicenes and the non-Nicenes is a matter of exegesis. 
both sides took Scripture as speaking of Christ. The non-Nicenes, however, insisted on an absolutely univocal exegesis, which applied all scriptural affirmations in a unitary fashion to one subject, who thus turns out to be a demigod, neither fully divine nor fully human, created but not as one of the creatures. And at least in the modern reading of this, this demigod is a temporal being with his own history, the pre-incarnate Lagos, who eventually, as one phrase in his existence, animates a body, becoming the man, Jesus Christ. For the Nicenes, on the other hand, Scripture speaks throughout of Christ, but the Christ of the Kerygma, the crucified and exalted Lord, and speaks of him in a twofold fashion, demanding in turn a partitive exegesis. That is, some things are said of him as divine, and other things are said of him as human. Yet, referring to the same Christ throughout, seen in this way, the conflict turns upon two different ways of conceptualizing the identity of Christ. Any questions there? Questions there? We're doing okay with that larger definition. This has in turn really become a staple definition of partitive exegesis. Um, I, I, in my own scholarship, push against it just a little bit. I want him to define it a little bit more sharply. But this is what happens when you're trying to talk about a century of uh, patristic thinkers, where I am trying to talk about Cyril in particular. Right? So we're not even, at, we're doing two different things. So I want to be very generous there. So as Baer defines, the primary difference between pro-Nicene and non-Nicene is a matter of partitive or univocal Christological readings. Additionally, partitive exegesis exclusively reflects a mode of Christological exegesis about the two natures of the Son. Two Cyrilline scholars that I, I deeply uh, deeply respect uh, uh, Crawford here is uh, is a good friend. Uh, Boulnois and more briefly Crawford have discussed Cyril's practices more recently within Cyriline literature. Crawford in particular notes two occurrences where Cyril brings together theologia and economia as a kind of exegetical rule. In thesaurus, now granted, thesaurus is the name of the book, and it's one of Cyril's first dogmatic books, probably 415-ish. He's been bishop 410, 412, so this is the early part of his bishopric. In Thesaurus uh, uh, 10, the distinction between theologia and economia uh, functions primarily as a sort of exegetical rule, providing a way of distinguishing the passages that speak of Christ as God and those that refer to him only by virtue of his assumption of flesh. So then, building from Bournois and Crawford, I suggest that Cyril's part of the exegesis assumes the son's theologia and economia of the flesh, the phrase economy of the flesh occurs with relative frequency to suggest the son's activities during the incarnation. It serves as a way to distinguish the seasons of the son. We sort of talked about this last week, right? <clears throat> son eternal and the son incarnate. Cyril's partitive readings assume the theologia of a two-natured son and the economia of the Son. So then in this way, and in particular to his commentary on Hebrews, Cyril's scriptural exegesis will distinguish between the Son as divine, the Son as human during the incarnation as a single subject, and the economic activities of the incarnated Son that derive from these two natures, thereby making a distinction between theologia Questions, comments, what the crap am I talking about? I have no idea. 
What do we want to chat about? Anything so far? So if you can see, I'm just trying to set the stage. Can you quickly uh, define the theologia of the, of the sun? Yep. Again? Yep. I'm over here. yep, absolutely. So this is going to be very kind of a big swing of the hand. Remember our language of odd intra? What do we mean by odd intra? Within the God. Yep. Within God, odd extra meaning what? What do we mean by odd extra? So God inside of himself, God outside of him, right? Okay, so if we have this, this twofold paradigm, God in, in himself is where we want to talk about theologia. Uh, keep in mind, these, all these terms are not synonymous. Or, or at least moving in a similar river, so to speak. This is where we'll also talk about nature inside of God's nature. So when we do, theologia sounds like what English word? Theology. theology. This is why it's called theology proper. The doctrine of God is theology proper, right? Because early Christians would call it theologia is the full contemplation contemplation of God and his nature. So theologia has no types of categories for God's activities. We could talk about odd intra theologia and we could talk about odd intra activity, right? So that's why I don't want to crash these all together. But in odd extra, for sure, this is where we get oikonomia, the economy of God. What are the two big movements of the economy of God? The incarnation and Pentecost. Those are the two big economies of God. What is also attached to this? God creating. So when we talk about economia, uh, sorry, when we talk about theologia, it's contemplation of God and his nature, sort of an isolation. Economia is where we start talking about God and his activities with creation. Is that helpful, Joe? Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. Yep, good. Is there a word for the two? Which one? For add intra, add extra, combine. Uh, not that I know. Okay. Not that I know. This one is often called uh, odd interactivity. Is often called perichoresis. Uh, it's not a one to one, but the perichoresis of God is how do the the, the three persons interrelate one another in terms of their activity to one another. Perichoresis is not just about their internal nature relating to another person. Okay, any comments, any questions? Yep. Laura's article, he calls, uh, he defines the visual as the, uh, he calls it grand vision or something like that. I'd be fine with that. Yeah, because we're still at the same level. It's, you're com you're contemplating God in Himself. Yeah, that's great. What what art? Which article? Bloor's article. Oh yeah 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 yep 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 excellent. Yep good 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 yeah yeah Paul Blowers is a um, he's brilliant he's brilliant. Uh, Blowers, uh, if, if you were to put me in a trajectory, I want to talk about spiritual life to Jesus the way Ayers talks about it and the way um, uh, Paul Blowers talks about it. And there are probably like two or three others. Peter Martins, I want to talk about spiritual life to Jesus the way they talk about it. Okay, any other comments, any other questions? We're good, we're good, we're good. Yeah. Is there a difference between nature partitive exegesis and timing partitive exegesis so like jesus 
before the incarnation yeah. versus Jesus during the incarnation. Is there a term for it? No, there's not a term for it, but that's part of what's being talked about. So remember the seasons of the sun, right? The sun uh, eternal, the sun incarnate, the sun glorified. When we talk about the sun, how many natures does he have over here? One, only one nature. It's the eternal divine nature that remains immutable. And now it's in the incarnation. Now what happens? He then has a second, and it's humanity. This is where, let me just be totally honest, where Cyril becomes confusing. I don't know if he knows fully what to do over here in the third category. Because the son still has a human nature with his divine nature, but it's a glorified human nature that he now has. So part of the next Jesus, what does this do? It tries to diminish or to stop treating the fourfold gospels as describing Jesus as he always is, right? That's what univocal means. So for example, John 14, uh, the father has sit, uh, sent me and I submit all to the father's authority. Well, is that merely incarnation, or is that who the Son is eternally? Part of the exegesis tells you what? Nope. That is fully bound to the incarnation because of his humanity and not tied to his eternal nature. So honestly, Connor, I'm thinking of you right here. If modern theologians grasp the full gravity of partitive readings, we would not be in this Trinitarian debacle. Let me just be as clear as I can there. We would not be in this Trinitarian debacle. Attached to that, if modern theologians know how to retrieve Nicaea and the elements therein, we would not be in this current debacle. Because of, of, of the, the question right there is perfect because it hits the head. It hit, it's one of those questions that hits the nail right on the head what do we do with texts that have Jesus portrayed humanly, and how do we then speak of the eternal nature? Jesus has fatigue. Jesus has, uh, is tired. Jesus has hunger. Jesus submits to the Father. Jesus doesn't know all things in the incarnated form, right? There's one thing he doesn't know. So then do we then automatically look back and say that is how the divine nature works? Or is, do we simply attribute it only to the human nature? Just look at this. Um, does Cyril acknowledge his uh, glorified human nature is eternal? Or no. Is glorified, if we say eternal this way, yes. But if we say eternal this way, no. Because he won't affirm a human nature here. Okay. So if it's only the other way to the right, how could that be eternal? Uh, eternal life. You have eternal life in Christ. Back here, you're not saved. You're not saved until here, that onward. So even the scriptures use it in that sense. Let me be really careful here. Eternal doesn't necessarily mean eternal in both directions because it can have a starting point onward. So that's what he believed. Only eternal yeah. to the right. Onto the right. Okay. And honestly, I, I'm still trying to get my hands around this. He's just not clear. I think I don't think that's it's not the debate of the day, right? So he's not forced to think through it. I don't think he's forced to fully wrestle with it in ways that he's wrestled with these two. And honestly, let's just be fair. Do we know how to talk about currently the glorified human body of Jesus and what it does to his omniscience, what it does to his omnipresence? what it does to his activities, his theologia. Like, I, I would have a hunch we sort of don't know what to do with it either. <laughs> Big picture. These previous two categories, I think we have a better um, way of handling Okay, Jared, Chris, Matt, we're okay? Okay, good. Daniel, Jonah, Darren, we're all right? Okay, good. Good, Joe, is that helpful? Okay, yeah. Good. Okay, let's keep rolling. I'm 
That's it. Yep, we're good. Keep rolling, and let's then dive into Cyril's actual commentary on Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. So keep in mind, I am going to quote scripture as we go. Um, trying to give attention to his use of scripture and how he um, identifies various interpretive trajectories. First section holds up a mutual tension of the two nature Christology, holding up a tension of a two nature Christology. So first off, on multiple occasions in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, Cyril holds together the two natures of the Son in mutual tension. As he addresses one particular nature, Cyril will be sure to include the other nature. For example, <clears throat> uh, I got turned around. There we go. For example, while the Son is the divine begotten word, Cyril will mention something related to his human nature or vice versa. Uh, does anyone know what the extra Calvinisticum is? What is the extra Calvinisticum? The extra Calvinisticum. It's a Christological concept. Uh, Christological concept. Jesus as a baby still upholding all things. So the extra Calvinisticum is this notion of, of Jesus in the extreme doesn't affect one or the other. Jesus as an infant still upholds all that he is eternal. So Cyril, I don't want to call Cyril upholding the extra Calvinisticum because that is a very reformed type of Christology. Uh, but I, what I do want to suggest is it's at least a nascent form here uh, in this idea. So in a tongue-in-cheek fashion, Cyril's arguments reflect an inseparable two-nature theologia of the sun. I'm making up a term here, so just be totally mindful. This is a made-up term. In other words, as one nature is brought to the fore, Cyril will likewise include the other nature. In the first lengthier section where Cyril model, models his pattern, Cyril presents a partitive reading of a small phrase in Hebrews 1-2, quote, in these last days to us through the Son. He uses the Philippian hymn as a, as a lens. He points to Psalm 2 and to John 1 to display one particular nature, and he hints at a pro-Nicene X of X Christology. As Cyril mentions Hebrews 1-2, he alludes to the Philippian hymn as an exegetical control. The being of God is known as Emmanuel and also having been begotten by humanity with us. The word from God. That's X of X. He is recognized as a free man in the form of a slave. He confesses the fullness of the one emptying himself for us who is gazing upon the glory of the exalted one, having seated himself for us unto humility. While being the word from God, the Son was begotten by humanity, assumed the form of a slave, emptied himself for humanity, and exalted back to glory for humanity. Next, Cyril joins together Psalm 2 with John 1, to narrate the incarnation. This is fascinating. Psalm 2 and John 1 narrate the incarnation. As Cyril moves from the co-eternal son to the human son, he mentions both natures concerning one another. Cyril comments, and the son indeed then, being by nature and co-eternal with the father when he adored through the holy virgin and the birth, according to the flesh for us. The Son is co-eternal, consubstantial with the Father, yet he is brought forth as a human by the Virgin. Cyril quotes Psalm 2-7 in John 1-11, and then Psalm 2-6 in successive order. So get this. John 2-7, or sorry, Psalm 2-7, John 1-11, and then Psalm 2-6. He uses these three texts 
to convey a narrative to display how the son speaks to us. The father says to the son, today I have begotten you to refer to the incarnation of the son. Quoting the gospel of John, Cyril provides the announcement of the son to humanity. For, the, for John has borne witness concerning him that he came unto his own, saying his own is the world. And then the father says, I have placed a king on the earth. Quoting again, Psalm 2. Even as the string of text conveys a particular narrative of the incarnation, Cyril displays the tension in the presence then of these two natures. Any questions there? It's a very fascinating exegetical move. So keep in mind, keep in mind, my interests are not to constantly determine are these good or are these good readings or bad readings. That's not even my category here. I, what I want to do is try to do good historical work to actually unearth what is it that they're doing and trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Why is it that they made that move? And then we just leave it up to us. If we're convinced of it, then use it. If you're not convinced of it, don't use it. It's a, this is by no means. Um, Cyril next alludes to a mutually present two-nature pro-Nicene Christology. The sun, as he writes, is X of X. It is evident that he is of God and the Father, as he upholds these things in order that being made into a son as a human, and yet according to nature existing as God, he may pioneer by himself in the human nature the participation of sonship, and he may summon those subjected to the tyranny of sin into the kingdom of heaven. The Son derives his origin from the Father, upholds all things, begotten as a human, exists as God, and appears as a human. This back and forth between the two natures displays the simultaneous expression of the two natures within a single subject. For he was manifest to us, not that he was at all times the begotten in himself, for he is also filled with the nature of God. He altogether lacks nothing. He possesses much in abundance since the entire good creation. He was not always in the human begotten form, for he is also filled with the Father's nature. As the extant fragment of Hebrews 1-2 uh, concludes, Cyril includes a line of reasoning about the constant <clears throat> divine nature during the Son's incarnation. After arguing for the economy of the flesh along with the eternally begotten Son, Cyril links three texts together to display the divine theologia of the Son. So now in this case, Hebrews 13, John 8, and then John 1 are used in consecutive order as a proof text for the divine theologia during the incarnation for it is written christ jesus yesterday and today is the same and for eternity because also having appeared in the flesh he confirmed to himself the former as in the divine nature he will confirm saying to the jews truly truly i say to you before abraham was born i am the divine John and the evangelist also said, the one coming after me ranks above me because he was before me. For Christ is enriched in all things and preeminent. So the son's experiences and economy of the flesh are in addition to the eternal nature. So in this way, Cyril can say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and for eternity. For the divine the theologia remains immutable. Cyril uses both Johannine texts as proof texts to describe the preeminent and superior son. All three of these proof texts highlight the constant divine theologia even during his incarnation. That's where I get this line, right? 
maintains consistency. Final section, Cyril attributes, also attributes the divine name, angel of great counsel from Isaiah 9 to describe the incarnated son's activity. The incarnation of the son, the father in the incarnation of the son, the father is made visible to us. For he is the only begotten and he is not of some other flesh. For God, being in the flesh, begot a human while remaining God. For he made the secret will of God the Father visible to us. Similar, his name will be called Angel of Great Counsel. We're left to think, is Cyril sort of capitulating to second century angelic Christology? No, he isn't. Angel has a, in its lexical domain, the concept of messenger. He is the messenger of great counsel. In making this argument, Cyril upholds the two natures of the son to be simultaneously concerning the other. As born of a human, he remained God, and in remaining God, the son made the secret will of God visible to humanity. Okay, we'll do a full stop here. Any questions? Any comments? I'm sure a lot of this is just, oh, that's fascinating. Why did they do this? Why did they do this? Any questions? Darren, Jonah, Daniel, doing all right? Any questions that are coming up from the reading? Okay, Chris or Joe? Okay, Jared, Matt, Connor, are doing all right? Yeah, I have a question. Here. I have a question. Yep, who is this? Who's it? Yeah, go for it, Marina. So, well, with uh, possibly this Nestorian controversy, did they all have like the full canon of the text? Yeah, yeah. So they, they're, yeah. they're the same thing. They're not. It's not like they're missing something, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I don't have Hebrews. How can I know Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever?" That's right. That's right. Canon. Um, gosh, uh, I, I I probably should do one of like. Scripture formation, that would be an interesting topic. Like how was the scripture formulated in this era? So when we say canon, we mean something by that. When they say canon, they mean something a little bit different. Go and look up this book, uh, John Mead, M-E-A-D-E, Canon Lists. John Mead, Canon Lists. Do you wanna talk about a THM project? This would be one of them. Uh, getting into canon debates is pretty, it, it, it's a hard debate to get into uh, because it's very hard to navigate. It, it has some fuzzy lines attached to it. So for example, I don't know what the Nestorians have and I don't know uh, uh, all what Cyril has, but the Codex Vaticanus, Codex Vaticanus, has what two books added on beyond Revelation? Does anyone know? The book of First Clement, and I believe it's the book of Barnabas. Like it was attached in a codex. So we have to then have two different categories. Canon would have included those two items for the Codex Vaticanus, but scripture is something different. So in antiquity, scripture and canon are not the same, whereas today, scripture and canon totally overlaid, same thing. So scripture and canon are not the same thing in antiquity. And I know that that's such a, that, that is very unsettling because we're not used, I think we're not used to that. And then we're like, the next couple of questions are, well, what are their bounds? What did they, did they not use? And they would still have a clear idea of what they would use authoritatively. What they use authoritatively would reveal their doctrine of scripture, their doctrine of authority. But canon, they're just putting it in a codex. Can you, can you so, describe the distinction that they would have made between those two things again? The, yeah, this is, gonna be, this is gonna be a quick sweep of the hand. Uh, canon, is almost equivalent to what is the codex? Like what is the book actual form? 
Scripture then, what are they using as authoritative? So for example, uh, even though First Clement is in the Codex of Codex Vaticanus, no patristic preacher would have ever preached First Clement. So even though it's in canon slash codex, it's not being relegated as scripture and so would they have used it more kind of like, like for something like First Clement would have been more of like a like something that they would have referenced in a homily or a sermon, something like, you know, the way we would use Spurgeon or appeal to Jonathan Edwards or something like that. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. So First Clement had authority, but wasn't scripture? No, neither. Scripture and authority go together. Codex, <coughs> Codex can. So why did they include it? Uh, to preserve it. In the same way, when I remember the, I made a joke the other day, there was a church that I uh, was the one of the first churches that I pastored at. When there was a new believer, what did we hand them? Gospel of John, one hand, John Piper, second, right? It, it's very similar, right? It's very similar. You're essentially handing them Bible, one hand, first Clement, and second. That's what it would have been viewed as. Can we say that they have canon, but canonization came later? Yeah, with what we know it as or what they know? What they know it as, canonization is super early. Super early. Second thing. This whole notion where canon is formed at Nicaea, nope. That is not true. That is not true. Canonization uh, in terms of in terms of forming canon in the second century. Second century. Okay, let's take a quick five. Take a quick five, rest the brain, rest the eyes. Go make a quick coffee and use the restroom. Take a quick break. <laughs> 